Chapter Twenty Eight of Opening a Chestnut Burr by Edward P. Rowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter Twenty Eight What a Lover Could Do. Without a word, they descended the hill. Gregory was very pale, and this, with a certain firmness about his mouth, was the only indication of feeling on his part otherwise he was the same finished man of the world that he had appeared when he came annie's face grew more and more troubled with every glance at him he is hardening into stone she thought and she was already reproaching herself for speaking so harshly i might have known she thought that his rash bitter words were only incoherent cries of pain and disappointment he perplexed her still more by saying at the foot of the hill in his old light tone see miss walton our well-meaning friend has not been here to put up the bars and we can take the shorter way through the orchard i would like to see them picking apples once more by the way you must say good-bye for me to your old neighbor and tell him that out of respect for his first honest greeting i'm going to fill his pipe for the winter but annie's heart was too full to answer how familiar these mossy trunked trees are he continued determined that there should be no awkward pauses no traces to the eyes of others of what had occurred how often i've picked apples from this one and that one indeed from all good-bye old friends do you never expect to come back to these old friends and others that would be friends again she asked in low trembling tones mr gregory you are cruel you are saying good-bye as if it were a very ordinary matter he did not trust himself to look at her but he said firmly miss walton in a few moments we shall be under the eyes of others and perhaps i shall never have another chance to speak to you alone let me say a few plain honest words before i go i am not ashamed of my love for you nor to have it known i am glad there was man enough in me to love such a woman as you are you are not one of those society belles who wish to boast of their conquests I merely wish to leave in a manner that will save you all embarrassing questions and surmises, and enable you to go back to your father as if nothing had happened. The best I can do is to maintain the outward semblance of a gentleman with which I came. In regard to Charles Hunting, please listen patiently. I know that you will not believe any statement of mine. It is your nature to trust implicitly those you love but since i have had time to think even the little conscience i possess will not permit me to go away in silence in regard to him do not think my words inspired by jealousy i have given you up you are as unattainable by me as heaven but that man is not worthy of you think well before you you are right she interrupted hotly i will not believe anything against him whom i have known and loved for years if sincere you are mistaken but i entreat you for my own sake as well as yours never speak a word against him again because if you do it will be hard for me to forgive you if you place the slightest value on my good opinion and continued regard you will not throw them away so uselessly i do feel i ever wish to feel a deep and friendly interest in you therefore speak for yourself and i will listen with honest sympathy give me hope if possible that you will think better of all this folly that you will visit your old home and those who wish to be your true friends that you will give me a chance to make you better acquainted with one whom you now greatly wrong please give me something better than this parting promises to end in he merely bowed and said 
I supposed it would be so. It is like you. As for myself, I do not know what my future will be, save that it will be full of pain. Rest assured of one thing, however. I can never be a common, vulgar sinner again after having loved you. That would be sacrilege. Your memory will blend with that of my mother and shine like a distant star in my long night. But you have no right to ask me to come here any more. Though you do not believe in my love, it is a reality nevertheless, and I cannot inflict upon myself the unbearable pain of seeing you, yet hedged about with that which must ever keep me at a distance. With my feelings, even my poor sense of honor forbids my seeking your presence. Can I visit you feigning friendship while my heart is consuming with love? Come, Miss Walton, we shall have our real leave-taking here, and our formal one at the house. I don't think gratitude will ever fade out of my heart for all you have tried to do for me wherever I am. Even the selfish Walter Gregory can honestly wish you happiness unalloyed, and you will have it, too, in spite of, well, in spite of everything, for your happiness is from within, not without. Give me your hand and say good-bye under the old mossy trees. Annie burst into tears and said, I can't say good-bye and have you leave us so unhappy, so unbelieving. Mr. Gregory, will you never trust in God? I fear not, not after what I know to-day. He seems wronging you, who are so true to him, as well as me. You see I am honest with you, as I said I would be. Can you take the hand of such as I? She did take it in both of hers, and said with passionate earnestness, Oh, that I could save you from yourself by main force. He was deeply moved, but after a moment said gently, That is like your warm heart, but you cannot. Good-bye, Annie Walton. Go on in your brave, noble life to the end, and then heaven will be the better for your coming. Will you forgive my harsh words? They were more true than harsh. They were forgiven when spoken. Mr. Gregory, she cried, I will not say farewell as you say it. I have prayed for you, and so has your mother. I will still pray for you unceasingly. You cannot prevent it, and I will not doubt God's promise to hear. I cannot share your faith. I am saying good-bye in the saddest sense. He stooped and kissed her hand, and then said firmly, The end has come. We really part here. I leave you as I came. With eyes downcast and blinded with tears, she accompanied him out of the deep shade to the further side of the orchard nearest the house. Jeff was on a tall ladder that leaned against a heavily laden tree and was just about to descend. "'That's right,' cried Gregory. "'Come down with your basket and give me a taste of those apples. They look the same as when I used to pick them sixteen years ago.' Jeff obeyed with alacrity. Gregory accompanied him a few steps and dropped a banknote into the basket, saying, "'That's for the jolly wood-fires you made for me,' and then turned quickly toward Annie to escape the profuse thanks impending. He had turned none too soon. The apple-boughs, relieved of the weight of the fruit and Jeff's solid person, threw out the heavy ladder that had been placed too nearly in a perpendicular position at first. It had trembled and wavered a moment, but was now inclining over the very spot where Annie was standing. "'Miss Walton!' he cried with a look of horror, rushed toward her and stood with head bent down between her and the falling ladder. She heard a rushing sound, and then with a heavy thud the ladder struck him, glanced to one side, grazing her shoulder, and fell to the ground. He lay motionless beneath it. For a moment she gazed vacantly at him, too stunned to think or speak. But Jeff ran and lifted the ladder off Gregory, exclaiming, 
Lord bless him, Miss Annie, he just done save your life. She knelt at his side and took his hand, but it seemed that of the dead. She moaned, The omen's true. His blood is on me now. His blood is on me now. He died for my sake, and I called him selfish. She took his head into her lap and put her hand over his heart. She thought she felt a faint pulsation. In a moment all trace of weakness vanished, and her face became resolute and strong. Jeff, she said, in clear-cut, decided tones, go to the house. Tell Hannah and Zibby to come here. Tell Hannah to bring brandy and a strong double blanket. Not a word of this to my father. Go, quick. Jeff ran as he had done once before when the bloodhounds were after him, saying under his breath all the way, Lord bless him, he saved Miss Annie's life. He order have her, sure enough. Annie was left alone with the unconscious man. She pushed his hair from his damp brow, and bending down, impressed a remorseful kiss upon it. "'God forgive me that I called you selfish,' she murmured. "'Where is your spirit wandering that I cannot call it back? Oh, live, live! I can never be happy if you die. Can this be the end? God keep my faith from failing!' Again she put her hand over his heart, whose love she could doubt no more. Did it beat? or was it only the excited throbbing of her own hand? Jeff now returned, and with white, scared faces the women soon followed. Annie tried to give Gregory brandy, but he did not seem to swallow it. Then they lifted him on the blanket and carried him to the house, and up the back stairway to his room, so that Mr. Walton might not know. "'Now, Jeff,' whispered Annie, "'harness the fastest horse to the buggy, and bring the doctor, mind. Bring him. Don't tell him to come.' Hannah, tell Miss Eulie to come here, quietly now. Zibby, bring hot water. Again she poured a teaspoonful of brandy into his mouth, and this time he seemed to swallow it. She bathed his face and hands with spirits, while her every breath was a prayer. Miss Eulie did not want a long explanation. Annie's hurried words, a ladder fell on him, satisfied her, and she set to work, and more effectively with her riper experience. She took off his collar and opened his shirt at the throat, and soon, with a look of joy, to Annie, said, His heart beats distinctly. Again they gave him brandy, and this time he made a manifest effort to swallow it. With eyes aglow with excitement and hope, they redoubled their exertions, Anna and Zibby helping, and at last they were rewarded by seeing their patient make a faint movement. Now, with every breath, Annie silently sent the words heavenward, O oh God, I thank Thee. She bent over him and said in a low, thrilling tone, Mr. Gregory. A happy smile came out upon his face, but this was the only response. Do you think he is conscious? she whispered to her aunt. I hardly know. Let me give him a little more stimulant. After receiving it, he suddenly opened his eyes and looked fearfully around. Then he tried to rise, but fell back and asked faintly, Where is Miss Walton? Is she safe? I heard her voice. You did. I'm here. Do you know me? Are you really here unhurt? Yes, yes, she answered eagerly. Thanks to you. Again he closed his eyes with a strange and quiet smile. Can't you see me? she asked. There seems a blur before my eyes. It does not signify. I know your voice, so true and kind. Why can't he see? she asked, drawing her aunt aside. I don't know. What I fear most are internal injuries. Did the latter strike his head? Oh, merciful heaven, said Annie, again in an agony of fear. 
I don't know. Oh, if he should die, if he should die. And she wrung her hands with terror at the thought. The doctor now stepped lightly in. Jeff had told him enough to excite the gravest apprehensions. He made a few inquiries and felt Gregory's pulse. It's very feeble, he said. More brandy. Then he added, I must make such examination as I can now without disturbing him much. Miss Morton, you and Jeff stay and help me. Annie went down to her father with a greater anxiety as to the result of the examination than if the danger had been her own. She found her father awake and wondering at the sounds in the room above. Annie, he said feebly, what is going on in Mr. Gregory's room? As she looked at him, she saw that he was not better, as she hoped, but that his face had a shrunken look, betokening the rapid failing of the vital forces. The poor girl felt that trouble was coming like an avalanche, and in spite of herself she sat down, and burying her face in her father's bosom, sobbed aloud. But she soon realized the injury she might do him in thus giving way, and by a great effort controlled herself, so as to tell him the softened outlines of the accident. But the ashen hue deepened on the old man's face, as he said, fervently, "'God bless him! God bless him! He has saved my darling's life! What should I have done in these last days without you?' "'But, father, don't you think he will get well?' she asked eagerly. "'I hope so. I pray so, my child. But I know the latter, and it is a heavy one. This is time for faith in God. We cannot see a hand's breadth in the darkness before us.' He has been very merciful to us thus far, very merciful, and no doubt has some wise good purpose in these trials and dangers. Just cling to him, my child, and all will be well. Oh, father, how you comfort me! We must leave everything in his hands. But, father, you feel better, do you not? Yes, much better, not much pain now, and yet for some reason I feel that I shall soon be where pain never comes. How otherwise can I explain my almost mortal weakness? Annie again hid her tearful eyes on the bedside. Her father placed his hand upon her bowed head and continued, It won't break your heart, my little girl, will it, to have your father go to heaven? But she could not answer him. At last the doctor came down and said, His injuries are certainly serious, and may be more so than I can yet discover. The latter grazed his head, inflicting some injury, and struck him on the shoulder, which is much bruised and the collarbone is badly broken. The whole system has received a tremendous shock, but I hope that with good care he will pull through. But he must be very quiet in mind and body. And so must you, sir. Now you know all, and have nothing to suspect. It's often injurious kindness to half-hide something from the sick. Well, doctor, do your very best by him, as if he were my own son. You know what a debt of gratitude we owe him spare no expense if he needs anything let it be sent for if i were only up and around but the lord wills it otherwise annie followed the physician out and said you have told us the very worst then yes miss walton the very worst unless there are injuries that i cannot now detect i think he will get better i will send a young man whom i can trust to take care of him Rest assured I will do all that is possible, for I feel very grateful to this stranger for saving my much-esteemed little friend. I suppose you know we all think a great deal of you in our neighborhood, and I shudder to think how near we came to a general mourning. You see, he was nearer the base of the ladder than you, Jeff says. The ladder, therefore, would have struck you with greater force, and you would not have had a ghost of a chance. 
You ought to be very grateful, eh, Miss Annie? He added, with a little sly fun in his face. But she shook her head sadly, and only said with deep feeling, I am very, very grateful. Then she added quickly, What about father? The doctor's face changed instantly and became grave. I don't quite understand his case. He was threatened with pneumonia, but there seems no acute disease now, and yet he appears to be failing. The excitement and exposure of the other night were too much for him. You must make him take all the nourishment possible. Medicine is of no use. Agitated by conflicting fears and hopes, Annie went to the kitchen to make something that might tempt her father's appetite. Blessed are the petty and distracting cares of the household, the homely duties of the sick room, they divert the mind and break the force of the impending blow. If, when illness and death invade a house, the fearing and sorrowing ones have not to do but sit down and watch the remorseless approach of the destroyer, they might go mad. When Annie stole noiselessly back to Gregory's room, he was sleeping, though his breathing seemed difficult. What a poor mockery the dinner hour was! Even the children were oppressed by the general gloom and talked in whispers but before it was over there came a bright ray of light to Annie in the form of a telegram from Hunting, saying that he had arrived in New York safely and would be at the village on the 5 p.m. train. "'Oh, I am so glad!' cried Annie. "'Never was he so needed before.' And yet there was a remorseful twinge at her heart as she thought of Gregory, but she felt sure of reconciliation now, for would not hunting overwhelm her preserver with gratitude and forgive everything in the past she said to jeff have dolly and the low buggy ready for me at half-past four her father seemed peculiarly glad when he heard that his relative the man he hoped would soon be his son was coming it's all turning out for the best he said softly the hour soon came for it was already late and annie slipped away leaving both her father and Gregory sleeping. To her great joy, Hunting stepped down from the train and was quickly seated by her side. As they drove away in the dusk, he could not forbear a rapturous kiss and embrace which she did not resist. "'Oh, Charles, I'm so glad you've come, so very glad,' she exclaimed almost breathlessly. "'And I've so much to tell you that I hardly know where to begin. How good God is to send you to me now, just when I need you most.' "'So you find that you can't do without me altogether. "'That's grand news. "'How I've longed for this hour. "'If I had my own way, "'I would have exploded the boilers in my haste "'to reach port to see you again. "'It was real good of you to come and not send for me. "'Come, Annie, celebrate my return "'by the promise that you will soon make a home for me. "'I am happy to say that I can now give you the means "'of making it a princely one.' "'I haven't the time nor the heart to think about that now, Charles. "'Father is very ill. "'I'm exceedingly anxious about him.' "'Indeed,' said Hunting, "'that is bad news.' "'And yet his grief was not very deep, for he thought, "'If she is left alone, she will come to me at once.' "'What is more,' cried Annie, "'a little hurt at the quiet manner in which he received her tidings. Suppose, instead of meeting me strong and well, you have found me a crushed and lifeless corpse to-night. Annie, he said, what do you mean? I mean that this would have been true, but for one with whom I am sorry you are on bad terms. Walter Gregory is at our house. He gave a great start at the mention of this name, and even in the deep twilight his face seemed very white. I don't understand, 
he almost gasped. "'I knew you would be deeply affected,' said the unsuspicious Annie. "'He stood between me and death to-day, and it may cost him his own life. He was severely injured. How badly we can hardly tell yet.' and she rapidly related all that had occurred. And now, Charles, she concluded, no matter what he may have done, or how deeply he may have wronged you, I'm sure you'll do everything in your power to effect a complete reconciliation and cement a lasting friendship. If possible, you must become his untiring nurse. How much you owe him! She noticed that he was trembling. After a moment he asked hesitatingly, Has he... How long has he been here, did you say? about three weeks you know our place was his old home and his father was a very dear friend of my father if i knew it i had forgotten it he answered with a chill of fear growing deeper every moment did he has he said anything about our difficulties nothing definite said she a little wonderingly at hunting's manner father happened to mention your name the first evening of his arrival and the bitter enmity that came out upon his face quite startled me you know well that i wouldn't hear a word against you he once commenced saying something to your prejudice but i stopped him and said i would neither listen nor believe him that he did not know you and was entirely mistaken in his judgment it was evident to us that mr gregory was not a good man indeed he made no pretense of being one but he has changed since as you can well understand or he couldn't have sacrificed himself as he has to-day i told father that i thought the cause of your trouble arose from your trying to restrain him in some of his fast ways but he thought it resulted from business relations you were both right said hunting slowly as if he were feeling his way along he was inclined to be very dissipated, and I used to remonstrate with him, but the immediate cause was a business difficulty. He would have kept me out of a great deal of money if he could. His words were literally true, but they gave an utterly false impression. Annie was satisfied, however. It seemed a natural explanation, and she trusted hunting implicitly. Indeed, with her nature, love could scarcely exist without trust. "'That's all past now,' said Annie eagerly. You surely will not let it weigh with you a moment. Indeed, Charles, I shall expect you to do everything in your power to make that man your friend. Oh, certainly, I could not act otherwise, he said, rather absently. He was scheming with desperate earnestness to meet and avert the impending dangers. Annie's frank and cordial reception showed him that so far as she was concerned he was as yet safe but he knew her well enough to feel sure that if she detected falsehood in him his case would be nearly hopeless. He recognized that he was walking on a mine that at any moment might be sprung. With his whole soul he loved Annie Walton, and it would be worse than death to lose her. The thought of her had made every gross temptation fall harmless at his feet, and even his insatiate love of wealth had been mingled with the dearer hope that it would eventually minister to her happiness but he had lived so long in the atmosphere of wall street that his ideas of commercial integrity had become exceedingly blurred when a questionable course opened by which he could make money he did not resist the temptation he tried to satisfy himself that business required such action and called his sharp practice by the fine names of skill sagacity but when on his visits to annie which of late during the worst of his transactions had been frequent rather than prolonged he had had a growing sense of humiliation and fear he saw that she could never be made to look upon his affair with burnet and co as he regarded it and that her father was the soul of commercial honor 
though mr walton's fortune was moderate not a penny had come to him stained after these visits hunting would go back to the city resolved to quit everything illegitimate and become in his business and other relations just what he seemed to them but some glittering temptation would assail him he would make one more adroit shuffle of the cards and then from being hollow would become morally and religiously sound at once during his voyage home there was time for thought a severe gale while lashing the sea into threatening waves had also disturbed his guilty conscience he had amassed sufficient to satisfy even his greed of gold for the present and his calculating soul hinted that it was time to begin to put away a little stock in heaven as well as on earth he resolved that he would withdraw from the whirlpool of wall street speculation and engage in only legitimate operations moreover he began to long for the refuge and more quiet joys of home and he felt as did poor gregory that annie of all women could do most to make him happy here and fit him for the future life therefore he had returned with the purpose of pressing his suit for a speedy marriage as strongly as a safe policy would permit the bright october day of his arrival in new york seemed emblematic of his hopes and prospects and now again the deepening night the rising wind and the wildly hurrying clouds but mirrored back himself his safest and wisest course would have been to make an honest confession to annie of the wrong he had done gregory as his mind recovered from its first confusion this thought occurred to him but he had already given her the impression that he had received the wrong or rather that it had been attempted against him moreover by any truthful confession he would stand convicted of deceiving and swindling bernard and co he justly feared that annie would break with him the moment she learned this so like all schemers he temporized and left his course open to be decided by circumstances rather than principle his first course was to learn of annie all that he could concerning gregory and his visit so that he might act in view of the fullest knowledge possible she told him frankly what had occurred so far as time permitted during their ride home but of gregory's love she did not speak and was perplexed as to her proper course loyalty to her lover seemed to require that he should know all and yet she was sure that gregory would not wish her to speak of it and she owed so much to him that she felt she could not do what was contrary to his wishes but hunting well surmised that whether annie knew it or not gregory could not have been in her society three weeks and go away an indifferent stranger jeff can give me more light he thought conscious of deceit himself he distrusted every one even crystal-souled annie End of chapter twenty eight